0: Uh, If you missed it, I'm CJ. I'm the Student Ministries Director here at the church. Uh, A few weeks back, we had our annual meeting that we do at the beginning of every year. Uh, And as part of that, we update you guys, the church, on what's happening in our ministries. And so over the next few weeks, we're taking time each week uh, to give an update and give some insight on what God has been doing in the ministries and where we're heading in the future. Uh, I wanted to share a little bit with you guys about what youth ministry has looked like over the past year. Uh, Man, God has really just been faithful to continue growing our students. And we've had a few big first things for the year. One of those was we took students to summer camp for the first time, and so last summer in July, we took students up to Hume Lake, and just really, uh, for the first time for many of them, had the opportunity to leave their normal life, leave the, the normal busyness of their week, and get up there with God, and get away from all the distractions, sit under teaching from the speaker multiple times a day, being worshiping together multiple times a day, bonding with their small groups and getting further into God's word. And it was really just an awesome opportunity to see how God uses experiences like that to continue growing our students. We had three students give their lives to Christ for the first time, as well as three students uh, choose to be baptized for the first time this year. And so, yeah. Man, praise God. Uh, Just some other things that we've been doing. One of the big changes we made this year was we moved from a split meeting uh, two different nights, a middle school night and a high school night, into one combined night. And if you've ever worked with students before, you know that students do not always get along very well, uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers, but we felt... God putting this on our hearts to try this combined time. And God has been so faithful to use that uh, to really grow our group uh, and to grow our students. We moved to a combined Wednesday night with some some time together as students and then some split time in teaching. Uh, and it's really been incredible to see how God has used that uh, to grow our students, to provide a really hospitable night together with all of our students and all of our leaders under one roof. It's really uh, been amazing. Last year, we had some nights where we would have four or five high schoolers um, total, and in the last month, we've had nights where we've had 25, 24 high schoolers together um, all coming to learn from God's word. So we want to praise God for what he's been doing uh, and the incredible work that he has done, but also— be faithful with what he's been doing and how we can use it to continue to minister to students. So we have a few uh, goals for this next year that I would like to invite you to be praying over with us. Or if you're someone who you feel God moving in your heart to be involved in youth ministry in some way, I'd love to speak with you after the service. Um, it takes many, many people and, and all sorts of different members of the church um, to make youth ministry happen to minister to our students. So um, one of the things that we're looking forward to in this next year is continuing as God brings students and as God brings uh, kids to come and learn about him, that he would continue to bring leaders as well. Um, Because the more students that we have, the more volunteers we need to run our youth ministry. So we're looking to grow our youth ministry team by six more volunteers in this next year. If you could be praying over that with us. Another step that we'd like to take this year is to get our students involved in missions, and so looking towards a few different missions opportunities that we've been praying over, if you could be praying over that with us. And then lastly, uh, that we, that God would continue to grow our group of students that attend each week so that we can continue sharing the gospel with them uh, and growing their knowledge of God and their relationship with God. So we want to praise God for all that he's done and look forward to how we can continue to faithfully minister to students this next year. And With that, I'm also going to be reading our scripture this morning. So if you'd like to, uh, we're going to be reading out of Luke 16 together, if you'd like to turn together. This is Luke chapter 16, and we're going to start with verse 18. And it says this, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if it is someone who goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Praise be to God. As we open the word together and we celebrate the work that God has done through saving those students, Jesus still saves, and as we submit to God's word, um, looking at Jesus and and how Luke compiles this, it's always interesting when you when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because if you're if you're familiar with probably just getting into Genesis and then Matthew, and that's like your two. You know, old and New Testament. Then, then you read Luke, and you're like, "Wait a minute, that doesn't always line up with what Matthew was saying on remarriage and adultery." And and why in the world would Luke insert this in the middle of a financial talk? Like Dave Ramsey's financial piece doesn't have an adultery section in, in the nine week or twelve week course. Like, where did that come from? Um, maybe. We, so we'll get to that in a minute. But in whenever I study, and I, and I love going through Luke. We're we're going through it verse by verse, and. And it's always irked me when I go to commentaries and they skip over verses like this. It's like, wait, weren't we, we're talking about money and we keep talking about kind of money with heaven and hell, but we're talking about hard things. Let's just keep talking about this because this is real life. This is a practical thing. We need to understand why Jesus is teaching on this. And in our context, Jesus saves and Jesus is teaching and he's talking about something that is so practical, and Luke is writing this letter to a young believer, Theophilus. So it's written to him, and it's, it's for us to know the heart of God. And as we see this moment, in the backdrop of our cultural time, there's revival happening. If you're aware of this college campus in Osbury, Kentucky, and the definition of revival is an act or instance of reviving renewed attention to or interest in something and it 's interesting whenever you read god 's word um, there 's a presentation of something that 's old there's a an understanding of truth here that we don 't understand often at face value and and so when we come to God and we were exposed of either error or we're delighted that God would love us even in our sin or despite of us, that's revival. And so it, there's a there's a funny post, Babylon Bee posted, like experts are stunned that revival happened in a church on Sunday morning. And, and people were like, that's not, yeah. And it's like, well, think about it though. Like words matter. And, and yes, at moments in time, for instance, this college Wilm, in Wilmore, Kentucky, multiple times in the 50s, was the first time where 60 hours God's Spirit fell and college students were convicted and they repented of sin and sat and worshiped God and praised God. In February 3rd in 1970, the dean of the school, Custer Reynolds, gave a sermon. But before he gave a sermon, he was convicted by the Spirit to just tell of the work of God in his life and, and shared a testimony and confessed sin. And, and students came and, and repented and turned to God and they canceled classes. And for 144 hours... This place was, was undisrupted, and God showed up, and people turned to God. In February 8th, a pastor of a local church prepared a sermon, and this time the Spirit said, give the sermon, and he talked through Romans 8, which you should read that chapter. It's amazing, and it's so deep and reminding of us that there's nothing that can separate us from God's love, nor height or depth or anything, and, and that's what the song we, we just sung, God works together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So if we're called according to his purpose, we probably have sin to confess because we're not good in ourselves. And 30 students stayed after that sermon. And the pastor gets to his car and the Holy Spirit's like, you're not done. That was a good start. Go back. And he went back and he saw these students and that kicked off this eight plus day revival. And and today... We're in this tension where people who, who believe that the Spirit doesn't work as much or at all, and they're like, oh, that's not, that's, you know, that's not happening. It's not good. Or there's people that want to make money off of it and get YouTube likes and that think that the, the acts of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit, the miracles, the tongues, that's proof. And so they've showed up, and they're trying to get in and grab the mic. But thankfully, the people at the college said, nope, we're not about that. This is God." and God's doing what he's doing, get out of here. And, and, and we're in this moment, though, where people say, well, I showed up for an hour, and they didn't exegete Luke 16 verse by verse. They didn't do these four points, and I don't think it's working. I don't think it's God. And it's like, whoa, in all of our lives, it's the evidence. Jesus says what God's love is doing in you will eventually go through you to others if it's me. And if you're truly transformed in a new creation, then there's going to be proof, And so I I submit to you as a church, what do you do in this? We pray and we wait for God to move and wait for God to work as we always do with God's word, let it have its effect on us, changing us. And it appears that God has done that in these days when so many of us are aware, our cultural moment, there's headlines of trains derailing, fires, chemical gases of Chernobyl and all of this secular society running as fast and as far away from God. And yet these young people are saying, I want more of God. There's no hope apart from Jesus. And so as we come to God's word today, how are we praying? How are our prayers? Is it 95% of you talking to God? Okay, hey, God, fix my marriage, fix my finances. Um, man, my job doesn't look like it's the going that well. Hey, do all this. And then, you, and then you sit for the 5% to listen. But really, you're listening to make sure God got your to-do list, Right? Like that's why we listen. We're waiting for him to repeat everything back to us and give us, okay, I think I can fix your marriage by noon because you have a you have a lunch date with your wife. We can fix that. And I think your credit card's due on the 15th, so we'll fix your finances then. And I know that there's a loan on your car, but there's gonna be an envelope in your mailbox. Not Thursday, Friday at three. We'll take care of it then, okay? It's gonna be a little hard for me to get it sooner. Like, that's why we wait. We wait for that assurance of God's going to do it on our timetable. But it's flipped because revival is not something that's left to just the people that are expecting and need this evidence for faith, and it's not dead. Revival is something that's always happened when God's word is read. And people repent of their sins. All through the Old Testament and in Nehemiah, it starts in chapter 9 and you keep reading it. And the whole time after that is the people of God saying, oh my goodness. Our whole history, God's been there and we've continued in sin. God saves us, we sin. He came and walked us through waters on dry land. And then we said, basically stuck the middle finger to him and said, forget you, we're going to have a golden calf. Like that was cool and all, but I got a calf now. Like, we blew it, and it's because they read God's Word, and the Spirit of God convicted them that they've been watching too much Netflix on binge and not reading God's Word, and they're like, we should, we should read God's Word, and hey, we should tell our neighbors about it. And that's how revival continually happens, but it's with the listening of God's Word. And so I, I submit to you, maybe we're not having the revival we ought to have every Sunday because we're not listening first. We're not listening throughout our days. When Paul says, Pray without ceasing, maybe it's less talking at God and, and listening from God without ceasing. It's that constant openness of, God, what do I do with this? And, and laying before Him our desires. Because the, the word that God gave me today to share with you, and someone maybe needs to hear this, but I, maybe it's just for me. So forgive me if it's just for me, but God does not love the things you love. He doesn't. And, and I think so often, especially in America, we think that the pleasure or our happiness God's so excited about for us. Like, you're going to be so happy when you get this new car. Man, when you get this pay raise, then you'll be happy, and I'm happy for you. That's your pursuit. Or when you get this destination vacation, then you're going to truly get the rest you need. But not, not from me. It's, it's, it's in Tahiti. It's there. Or it's in Hawaii. Like Whatever that is. But God actually isn't looking for buildings or programs. He didn't choose a building. He chose Abram and called him Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. It was always people. His Holy Spirit was always intended through revival, a refocus on the one God who made us in his image to bear his image more fully with the Spirit of God in us so that the love of God would flow through us. So when we're serious about having more of God, and not having more of God's blessing or more of saying, hey, God, this is a good idea. Get on board with this. But submit to him and say, okay, God, I want you to move. I expect you to move and I, I need less of me and less of my desires and I want more of you. So I'm going to submit to you how I'm feeling and thinking. And it's all about your love filling me up, flowing through me to others. And, and it's interesting how this past week, you know, my phone's been blowing up with all the, the news that's spread more widely now and, about the revival in Asbury, and I've told people, just make sure you cancel your plans for the next eight days. We'll just make sure there's heat, food here, talk to the elders, and we can just stay here. But it's also one of those things where, I I don't know about you, but I always feel like when there's revival or there's confession of sin, it's like we need to praise God and then go tell more people about God. There's always that move of God, and even as Asbury, that time that the leadership said, okay, we're There's going to be a transition now. There's going to be a time where we're done here. We need to go out there and and be the light. And so as Luke is writing this to Theophilus, and last week I got to spend time with my family up in the mountains and skiing uh, at the the cabin that my in-laws have, and Chris did a phenomenal job getting into the next part of Jesus' sermon as he talked about lost things. And then he talks about finances and, and the dishonest manager, but yet uh, was crafty in, in his use of resources and, 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 uh, and, and the tension of, okay, how are we stewarding our resources and, and bringing that up? And then we get this interesting verse 18, as we talk about value, how are we valuing and stewarding our marriage? And it seems like it comes out of nowhere but when you think about it, if you've ever thought about your budget, it's always based primarily on your biggest expense, <laughs> a roof over your head. And then it goes to the, the fuel to get kids around if you have a family or to get you to your hobbies. And then there's the food and then there's the entertainment. And, and the more kids you have or the more hobbies you have, um, well, your budget confines you, right? And you start thinking about that. And then it's time spent with people, whether it's your spouse or your kids or family, and oh, we could be great to go on this trip, but our budget's limited, so we're not we're going to stay home or, or there comes the travel warning, and you can't go to Mexico and you're like, sweet, all right, now I guess we're going to tomorrow Bay again um, you know so whatever that is like but immediately once you go to finance, you go to your 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 marriage, and so it's not completely out of out of the realm of reality but culturally, in their cultural moment, similar to ours, sexuality, identity is constantly under attack. And so from the moment Eve ate the fruit and then gave it to Adam, and Adam blamed her, marriage has always been under attack. When can I leave her? When can I leave him? And, and how do I legally get the exit? And so while, while Matthew brings this up and says, except for Adultery and unrepentant and continual sin—you can't divorce. And Luke says, if you divorce someone that's committing adultery, because culturally there was two schools of thought, and, and one of them said if your wife burns your soup, you're free to leave her. If you if you find anything off-putting at all with your your wife, you can just leave her legally. It's fine, and and so. Jesus was saying, no, you can't, you can't be that foolish and and, mis- and abusive stewarding that relationship. You can't, if you do that, that is sin. And so that's why Luke is very direct here, and, and, and Jesus' words are very direct, because he's addressing this cultural tension of, well, if, if I find any, if I find out after three weeks, my wife wakes up without makeup on before I do, I don't like that, I'm out. If there's any subtle little thing, that's, that is sin. You can't legally do that and think you're still good in God's eyes. And so I know bringing this up and and then we get into heaven and hell, there's a lot of hurt and pain surrounding this because there's a lot of marriages that have ended in divorce or remarriages and you're and you're left in that tension of, okay, Matthew kind of says, except for this one thing, it's okay to you know, in that one condition, adultery, I can get divorced. But now here it says, if you divorce and remarry, that's adultery. It's because the divorce was was like it is now, like the no fault. Just eh, he didn't put his socks away the way I wanted, so I left him. And it's all about the thought that it's our happiness, right? And our happiness is priority. So I'm not happy, so I can leave. And you know what? God wants me to be happy, and Satan is so, so crafty and meticulous. God said that he wants you to be happy, so leave him and get other people around you. Even get pastors to support your, your, your view. But really, God said he wants you to be holy. So marriage is actually the next step in your holiness. So out of your singleness, you're supposed to be serving God and be holy as God is holy. And then in your marriage, it's the next tier. Of, of trial and heartache and, and long-suffering and putting their needs before your own, and you're like, but aren't we supposed to outdo each other in brotherly love? So how come I keep, it feels like I keep, and it's like, well, that's because you're selfish, so repent and be more humble. And yes, keep serving her and putting her needs first. And, and then, yes, you feel belittled, and you feel taken advantage of, keep serving him, keep respecting him, and, and know that you're ultimately serving God, and that's what he's producing in you. And so Jesus here is saying it's always about stewarding. And yes, it is exhausting and impossible to serve and to steward a marriage that you don't have the Holy Spirit in you because you don't have the mind of Christ or the heart of Christ. And if you're not full of Christ's love, then you won't pour out his love in that relationship and you'll be empty. And so at the heart of it is how are we praying? Are we just talking at God or are we listening And second, are we being full of God's love? Which brings us to this last part of Jesus' sermon where he talks about a rich man and Lazarus. But so often we fool God, we think we can fool God in, in that God loves what we love and God's about our happiness. But really, until we have God's love in us, flowing through us, then we'll have that unity with the Spirit, with God, to love the things God loves, not the things we love and say, okay, God, get on board with this, but we'll submit to him and do what he's directing us to do. So we see his transition from the reality of how we value our marriage back to, okay, the reality is we're all going to die. And where are we going to spend eternity? These two people end up in two places. One is heaven and one is hell. But before we get there, they have this earthly experience. And they're in close proximity. He gives this gripping description contrasting these lifestyles. First, there's a rich man. And this rich man who was dressed in purple, fine linen, and lived in luxury every day, verse 19, says, This lifestyle of the rich and famous in Rome was literally like a king. This purple, this color of royalty, he wore these garments would have been Phoenician wool dyed in the purple of murex, a rare expensive sea mussel. And, and next to his skin, he wore bisus an unusually fine linen from Egypt. So it's like your 2,000 count sheet, you know, Egyptian, whatever. Like that's what he wore under his wool because wool's kind of scratchy. I have a wool flannel. I love it, but it is a little scratchy. So I got to kind of man up before I put it on, because I love that nice silky. You know, that'd be. I never thought about that. I was like, oh man, that's pretty. We're an American. I could probably afford a nice silky under shirt. I'm gonna look into that. And in stark contrast, there's this beggar named Lazarus who was covered in sores. He didn't have a silky three thousand count Egyptian under under his you know scratchy wool flannel. No, he's Barely clothed, just maybe a little speedo, you know, just barely there. Sores everywhere, and this poor guy, he has he has comfort. He God provides. Okay, the dogs licked his sores. That's Lazarus's comfort. And, and the the interesting thing is, we picture this beggar on the the edge of this. You know, there's a, a newer house on the, the back roads to. From Atasco to Templeton and my buddy owned the property, but they built this mansion on it and they tore the little shack down he was living in when we were kids. And and I always it's just like this Venetian, whatever, kinda cool, you know, Middle Eastern, kind of that like gladiator, that road to his house and the trees, you know, and you're like, oh, that's amazing. They pulled it out of the movie and I get to drive by it. And it's this beautiful home. And I could just see, you know, cause it's tucked back a ways and you can only barely see it a glimpse as you drive by. And there's a big driveway and then a gate and, and I, could, I could just imagine that's kind of how offset the house was from the gate where Lazarus laid but they didn't have like cars you could zoom by so when you left it'd have to be either a chariot or you'd walk right by Lazarus who was laid there and this illness and mal- malnutrition left him covered in these ulcers that were weeping and this constant hunger and he wanted a little bite from somebody and maybe the leftovers from the rich guy. Table and and John Noland is a is a scholar who studied luke and and he believes that the dogs weren't these you know dingoes running around or, or little stray dogs, but they're actually dogs of the rich man and the dogs would come and, and they would have the food you know scraps little crumbs dribbling off into their drool as they licked his wounds and and the scraps that they'd come gnawing on a bone and he would just maybe reach out and try and get a little chicken left out there, but there's nothing really left. And he's there having the comfort from this rich man's dogs. And the wealthy man would have known the beggar because he would have passed by and recognized him, which we see later on in the story, which the story isn't a literal just depiction of heaven and hell, but it's a, it's a narrative to say this is how, in the end, when you die, you think religiously, you can save face and you can have these hidden sins and, and know the Torah and know the Bible and sing the songs and you can have all this wealth and you think that's going to that's gonna be enough. It's going to save you, but it's not. The rich man's the one who ends up in hell. And it's the poor man who everyone would have thought he was in sin and he was despised and there's no hope for him. And Jesus is telling yet another point in his sermon the lost coin the lost sheep but it's the lost son he's trying to get home who's supposed to go to him why didn't the older brother go because it was Jesus who came for us to save us and bring us back home and then it's the dishonest manager who's like hey you you forgave debts but are you serving money or are you serving me like let's get to the heart of it and by the way while we're talking about the heart of the matter are you really consumed with just your happiness Or holiness and and how are you treating your spouse because at the end of it all of the things you think you love and that you want me to get behind it's not going to matter because you're going to be in hell unless you know me and you know my word and so Lazarus name literally means God has helped so Jesus is telling the story and he's telling them this is the man God has helped the poor beggar The poor sinner is the one that God's helped. The rich man who needs no repentance, who needs nothing, who has everything, self sufficient, pulled himself by his bootstraps, got the American dream, that's the one who ends up in torment. So, how could that rich man, considering himself a son of Abraham and a blessed member of God's people, be so heartless? He certainly was not an atheist. He believed in God. Apparently, he wasn't a sadducee because. They denied the resurrection, and so Jesus is telling this story. Again, the same audience, tax collectors and Pharisees, if you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks working through this little sermon that Jesus is giving, they see themselves in the resurrection. So the theology was really good. It was pretty sound theology that this, this man had. He would have affirmed the Torah, understood that death, after death came judgment. So why did he lack compassion? He didn't take seriously God's word. Because Hosea 6.6, 6, if he would have known this verse, God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, an acknowledgment of God rather than burnt offerings. Mercy, not sacrifice. You don't need to go sacrifice things. I desire mercy. And I desire a repentant heart that acknowledges me, that, that says I'm in sin and I need a Savior. That's what God desires. And again, you can read in Amos 5. 21 through 26, I hate and despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. And it goes on and he continues to say, at the end, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. God is saying, you're supposed to care for those. And my love is supposed to flow through you to meet the needs of those around you. If I've changed you, if I've spoken truth over you and you believe my word, then you're going to care for those around me. You're not going to be so consumed with taking food, taking the pigeons or taking the goats to the temple to kill and and leaving Lazarus there to starve. So if you have resources, you're supposed to use them to bless them. God gave us the law and the prophets to bring us face-to-face with our sin and need. And, and Paul makes that argument clear in Romans 7. But the rich man never really thought about any of that. He just thought about, well, this makes me look good, showing up every day with the same sacrifice, even though I have a, a poor beggar starving at the gate. But the reason isn't that he, he misses out on salvation because he's not generous with his money. The reason is that he doesn't believe God's word and rejects the Lord. And believing God's word means that you believe Jesus because all of scripture points to Jesus. Over 300 prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. Old Testament. You imagine if your mom sat down and wrote three things you're gonna do, I would not have done any of those three. Like I would have, if I heard about it, no way. Like that's, but 300, Jesus fulfilled. All of scripture is saying, look at Jesus. He's your savior. He's the one who's come to undo all that you've done wrong and to forgive and redeem and restore and explain how this is supposed to work. But he didn't believe the scriptures. He just did what he needed to do to make himself look good and he's made a prophet and he thinks that is enough. And he thinks that God loves the things he loves. And so he's content pursuing his own happiness, not holiness. Death brings this dramatic reversal of lifestyle because Lazarus, the time comes when the beggar dies and the angels carry him to Abraham's side, verse 22. It says the beggar dies and the angels carry him, which means his physical body was probably thrown into the trash deep, just thrown, taken to the dump and burned because they had that perpetual fire that was going in their dump. And so they would have burned the body. So the angels carried him to Abraham's side. No one bothered to give the beggar's loathsome body a burial. They just tossed him in the trash Ignored by human beings, he was carried by heavenly beings to Abraham's bosom, a place of honor at the heavenly feast where he reclined to the right of Abraham as they enjoyed intimate conversations. You look at John 13. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom not because he was poor, but because through his name, God has helped. Had mocked him in life, he believed God's word and trusted in him. He was at rest serene and eating his fill at the messianic table because everyone in the jewish world in that culture the backdrop again the pharisees would have been like lazarus yeah right god helped god helped the poor beggar whose wounds were oozing and and this rich man wouldn't even feed him because obviously there's probably a sin there and that's god's judgment on him and there would be no way nothing holy nothing redeemable nothing good and god helped give me a break The most unclean animal, the dogs, were the ones comforting him. God's not going to help. Oh, he's in heaven? How did he get in heaven? Because you don't get in heaven unless God, by his grace, saves you. Because Jesus died on the cross in your place, walks out of the grave and says, now you can have a new life. Unless God helps you, you're not getting into heaven. And then comes the exodus of the man who loved purple. So I always laugh at that because there's this new purple company that makes these mattresses that they roll up and ship to you in a box. And we, we got one of those a couple years ago, and it's really nice. Like, it, And I just think about, you know, when I was doing mission trips in Costa Rica, the most important thing I, I purchased was this air mattress. That I could blow up in two seconds, and it was, like, extra large, extra long, super, like, four, four inches thick. And I was like, man, that's a great night's sleep. And we, I... I'm so convicted over this. It's like, how much money and how much time do I spend on my comfort? And I'm like, man, this mission trip's going to be awesome, God. You love that I got a new air mattress. Aren't you so, like, don't you love that I have a good night's sleep coming my way at the end of a long, hard day doing work for you? Like, we love things in this world, and we love to create this idea that God loves it too. And he's like, no, I. that's not. You know how many people have lived for centuries, and they don't even have a, they just live. They just sleep on the ground. It's you, you. You could do it. It's okay. You'll you'll survive. I'm like, no. There's ants. God, I want five inches between me and those ants. It's gonna be awesome. And this amazing, elaborate funeral that this rich man had, and they buried him in his purple. Again, purple. They just lavished him, decked him out, did him all up and good in the casket. And then they had the giant, you know, ornate headstone, giant thing, in and the and the Place where they bury people. My mind escaped me. Um, cemetery. Thank you. I don't like to think about death, even cemetery. They put him in the cemetery, and they have this huge thing for you to go and see. That's where the rich guy died, and you could celebrate him. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus says, "Okay." They go to Hades, and there's this chasm, and they see each other, and 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 we see that he gets to experience this role reversal. And that this is a parable. It's not intended to teach us principles or give exhaustive picture of the afterlife, but we see the rich man was in eternal torment. Massive eternal equity was underway. So when we think about us as Christians today, is our faith real? Are we following Jesus? If so, then it's going to impact how we use our finances. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 1 John 3, 17. All of this is summed up there. If we have possessions, that's possessions that were given to us by God, and we see someone in need, but we don't have pity, and we don't want to give it away because, well, then we might suffer. How can the love of God be in him? How can God's love be in you? And so I think about that when we, when we hear these two requests from the rich man. How can God's love be in you today? If you don't see those around you hurting and suffering and at least pray for them, if not go, okay, how do I help them? So the rich man's requests are heard this way. First, for his comfort. The rich man pathetically cries across the distance pleading father Abraham have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm because I'm in agony in this fire again it's selfish thinking he's thinking of himself he's thinking he can talk to Abraham and say hey hey father Abraham you have many sons I'm one of them send that guy Lazarus dip his finger that poor guy that was on the edge of my, my road there at the gate, I'm kind of thirsty. Can I have a little reprieve? Give him, Get some water on his to- finger for my tongue. The arrogance. Jesus is totally just slapping the Pharisee in the face going, you think you're going to get to heaven? Not only are you not getting to heaven, you're going to be in hell and you're going to be complaining, but no one's listening. No one can respond. You're not going to get anything from it. And Lazarus does not say a word in the entire parable. On earth, he did not complain or blame God in this story that Jesus tells. And in heaven, he doesn't gloat or refuse to be the errand boy. There is this just holy, humble silence. And Abraham does the answering. And he says, son, in your lifetime, you received your good things. While Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in agony. Verse 25, Abraham was actually really tender in this response, saying, son, literally my child. He doesn't go, oh, you filthy sinner. You deserve everything you got. You're disgusting. No, he says, son, yeah, you're right. You did have this genealogy. You did have the resources. You did have every and any opportunity to know the truth, and yet you rejected Jesus. So now you get what you chose. He acknowledged heredity, kinship, but rejected the man's spiritual right to share in the blessing. The rich man exemplified Jesus' woe in the sermon on the plain, "Woe to you, who are rich, for you have already received your comfort." That should cause us all the question: "Woe to me. I've already received my comfort. Or am I using my wealth and my resources to help those around me? How am I leveraging my resources? There's this term downward mobility, which goes against everything American because it's always upgrade, upgrade to the next phone, the next car, the next house, the next spouse, right? You just upgrade like, ah, oh, that didn't work out. Maybe the next one will. No, it's, it's downward mobility. It's, I'm going to stay content. I'm going to do more with less. I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to have less things, less resources that, 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 our liabilities and i 'm going to use the resources that I have to help those who don't have any and and i I was really struck by that this pastor who was up in in canada and and it was in a part of Canada that was super super wealthy and he just felt god's calling on his, on his life to come move back to Fresno and he, and he went into one of the most impoverty stricken parts of Fresno and just did this house church and and it's super dependent upon God to bring in the resources and, and living on that minimal income and, and helping the schools and helping the community. And he's like, yeah, downward mobility. I just felt God's call instead of living up here and saying no to all the luxury and comforts and come serve the poor and the oppressed. And, and that's the opposite of this guy. And he thinks his arrogance still is about him. And besides all this between us and you, Abraham says, is this chasm that's fixed so that those who want to go from here To you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us in verse 26. And the great chasm literally yawning, this unbridgeable, uncrossable space. But yet they can see the tension. One suffering and one in comfort. And for his family was his next request. First was, hey, I'm uncomfortable. But notice he doesn't say, I don't want to be here. He just says, hey, make hell more comfortable. Can you make hell more fun? I thought I'd have, there's things I I love and I'm not having, I'm not loving this. Can you get me some water? Like he doesn't not want to be in hell. He wants to be in hell. He doesn't want to be in God's presence. He doesn't want to be with Abram or Lazarus. Forget that. He just wants Lazarus to come serve him. And so as an evangelist, when you share the gospel, doing the work, it's okay that people don't choose God. It's not on you. Our heart will break. We will mourn, we will continue to pray and continue to share pleading that they do believe because we know they don't know what's coming, but they still want it. And that blows my mind because it's the best deal ever and they're turning it down. But then he says, okay, well, for my family, because they don't want this experience. Let's, let's have, can you just send Lazarus back from the dead? That will convince them, he thinks. Maybe you've you've, a, you, you've told a co-worker or a family member about Jesus, and it's like, yeah, maybe someone comes back from the dead, or if Jesus comes and tells me I'm in sin, it's like, well, he he already did that, and then he died for the sin that you you have to pay for. So, no, I don't believe that. He has to come like smack me in the face, like, okay, geez, like, how the, the, how much more obvious can it get? And here Jesus answers this question, in telling this story. He figured that if Lazarus returned from the dead and gave an eyewitness account. His family would believe. He has five family members. But Father Abraham thought otherwise. Though, he said, they have Moses and the prophets, though. Let them listen to them. Verse 29. The patriarch said that those still alive on earth had the word of God. We have the word of God. And that is all that is needed. If they would pay attention to that, as we noted earlier, they would heed the scriptures. Great teaching regarding mercy. Mercy. And they would see they were to love their neighbor as themselves. They would see that they were sinful and they needed to turn to God for mercy and that Jesus would forgive them. Jesus later told the disciples on the road to Emmaus how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer those things to enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explains through the scriptures in Luke 24 concerning himself the prophecies over 300 jesus fulfilled were moses and the prophets jesus says hey when you read this it's all about me i am the one who came to save believe in me and be saved why are you slow to slow to believe the rich man disagreed no father abraham if someone from the dead goes to tell them they will repent he gets it he gets the gospel which blows my mind because when you share the gospel with people, if you've ever done this, they will repeat the gospel to you and then they will say no. Yeah, it's repentance. But I don't want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I just want him to be Savior. I just want him to love the things that I love. Can he be my cheerleader? It's like, uh, it's, that's the American gospel. He'll give you health, wealth, and prosperity. He'll cheer you on. Do good. Oh, that purple's great. Man, that wool's kind of scratchy. Here's your fine Egyptian under... Man, that looks awesome. That's not Jesus. Jesus saved Paul, and then he said, Hey, Paul, I'm glad you're a Christian now. You're following me. You're going to go tell people about me, and I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name. Go be an evangelist. That's the gospel. How much we will suffer joyfully, embrace suffering, generously and joyfully give above and beyond what we think we can do because we know how much generous God's been given to us with his love and grace. And the rich man's insistence that if someone would return from the dead, his brothers would repent is a subtle way of excusing himself. He was implicitly arguing that he would have repented if a special messenger from the dead came to him. He was saying that Moses and the prophets, God's word, was not enough. He needed some extra thing. And this is exactly what our culture says today. The Bible's not enough. The resurrection's not enough. We need a special sign. We need special wonders. Then we'll believe. How arrogant are we as humans when we're daring to tell God what he must do in order for us to believe? If God would just send ambassadors from the other side and we could talk to dead people or through AI talk to our dead relatives, then maybe we'd like, no, this is enough. We have Moses, the prophets, the spirit of God, Jesus resurrected, So Abraham concludes, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if even someone raises from the dead, which Jesus did. And they still were not convinced. And so when we think about this word that Luke has given to Theophilus and and to us today, it's to help us understand, man, how am I praying? Because revival, refocusing on God, the only one stopping revival is us if we're not repentant it's us if we don't hear god's word and submit to it and repent and then refocus and have this revival this re-experience with god that should be happening every sunday because revival happens every sunday when there's a football game on and they huddle and they revive the play they look at the information and then they line up and try and execute the play it's a it's a revival and sometimes they have big revivals and for us, when the Holy Spirit falls and we come and the Spirit's moving and it's a big confession of sin and turning back to Him because of God's Word, that's what we do every Sunday. As we read God's Word, we praise God for what He's done, and then we refocus on the truth of God's Word and let that have its effect in us throughout the week. And so the invitation now is 100% of us need to respond and let God's love fill us up that we would refocus That revival would happen here and we'd refocus on his word, letting his spirit convict us of sin, remind us of our identity in him. That man, no matter what we've done or what we're going to do, God's love is still flowing in us, to us, and through us for his glory and our good. And so as we close, we need revival. And I want to invite everyone to come up front. I know in, in the past, you maybe grew up and there's like an altar call and people came up and, and really the altar for me is, as I've learned, it's putting sin to death. As you put your sacrifices on the altar, it was what sin did you think you loved and God would get behind you and cheer you on and love it too and he's saying, no, I, I don't love that. That's actually sin, come and love me and let my love fill you up. And so this word revival as we think about it. It's this confessing our sin and this posture of humility, and so I say let's let's all respond, no matter if you've been following Jesus for 20 years, or you feel far from God, and this is your first time back, but we need to be praying together, praying for your marriage, praying for your wayward son, or, or daughter who's addicted, or daughter who has this image thing and doesn't think anyone loves her, or you love her, or the cancer diagnosis. We need to pray for healing and We're going to go to the Savior, believing he's our healer, trusting that he's our sanctifier, knowing he's our coming king, and confessing to God. And and we pray. I want to invite you guys to come forward. Get up out of the seat. Someone told me after the service, they're like, Brandon, you got to get us up. We don't like to get up. I'm like, I know. I try and get you up, and you just sit there and relax. And the heater's on. But get up and come forward and prepare your hearts for communion. We want to pray for you. And so as the elements are passed around, it's going to be weird, it's going to be crazy, but do it. And put your heart in a posture of confession before God. I'm not going to make you, there's not anyone in the back security is going to twist your arm and drag you up to the front, okay, just as I get, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, Brandon's getting a little crazy. There's not going to be an enforcer, but I invite you, come forward. And then take communion up here. And we'll have elders and, and others that are here to pray for you. But I want to, as the elements are passed, also remind you, Logistical thing, there's two cups, okay? Don't get shorted on the communion supplies. Get both cups. It's a little awkward if you're there without the bread. So I've been there too. Get both cups. But we're reminded that God is running after the repentant sinner. And if there's anything holding you down, if there's sin that's holding you back and you feel like, you, man, you've messed up too long and you've, you've run too far, he's running after you. And there's no strategy, there's no program that the Holy Spirit's waiting to get started or built to fill. It's it's you. The Holy Spirit wants to be in you and flowing through you, and he's making us new. And so as I invite you forward, I want to just pray over you and prepare our hearts, and then I'll give you a minute to pray, and then I'll come back up and close this for communion. So let's let's pray now, Lord. We go to you and we pray for the wayward sons that are in the room now or or that are part of our family, Lord, that have just run from you and, and run to the things of this world, looking to beer and, and alcohol and drinking too much or depressed and thinking pills will will cover the pain. We pray, Lord, for those that are questioning the reality of you, that you'd, you'd reveal yourself to them through Moses, through the prophets, through your word, that your spirit would be alive. We pray, Lord, knowing that our culture and our world is confusing male and female, who you made in your image and likeness and and, in trying to unravel the foundation of family and identity and and the desire of same-sex attraction with homosexuality, we pray for those struggling with that and know that, God, it's your plan, it's your love, it's your redemption, and as Jesus said, it's a new life, Lord, we pray for those who are struggling, that you would set them free Lord, we pray for those marriages here that are just, can't seem to get on the same page and it keeps having moments of flare-ups or fights. We pray that you'd be in it. You'd guard their hearts and their minds and protect it. We pray for their marriage, that you'd heal it, restore it, work through it. We pray, God, for your angels, that you would send them to surround the four corners of the house and defend it and protect it and fight against the enemy and the the attacks, Lord, that are coming constantly against the families and the marriages and and those single and dating lord as, as they long for that we pray that you 'd send your angels concerning everyone here to guard against their mind and their hearts and, and do battle against the enemy God, and we pray for the the families that are they're looking for help and, and can't seem to figure out what why things keep getting off the tracks, Lord, that you'd restore them, comfort them, strengthen the marriages, strengthen those single who are growing in their relationship with you and serving out of their singleness. God, we pray for those who have been diagnosed with cancer, that you'd heal them and restore them. Lord, we, we ask that you would restore hope, that you would bring healing to those deep wounds. And God, we pray for those who've yet to believe in you and that are here saying, man, I I see I'm a sinner and I know when I die, I'm gonna have to pay for my sin unless I believe in Jesus and confess that he paid for my sin, repenting of my sin, turning to him, believing he rose again to give me new life. And, And Lord, those who are confessing their sin and trusting in you, we pray that you would give them the boldness to stand and say, I believe and come forward and receive prayer and we could celebrate with them. God, we pray as we are here today that we confess so often and for far too long we've, we've enjoyed the comforts and the loves of this world and at times even thought you loved the fact that we were comfortable, but in reality, you long to see us steward the resources and our relationships in a way that brings glory to you and serves those who have needs around us. We pray that we'd be full of your love and overflowing with your love to care and serve those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll give you a minute to pray and then I'll come up and close this with communion.